Well, hello. How are y'all doing this morning? Good, good. Well, I'm going to warm you up so you actually talk back to me. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and you have come on our final week of a four-week series called Gospel, Good News from the Letter of Colossians. And we've been, we started in chapter one. There's four chapters in this book. We've just been working our way from beginning to end of this book. And we made that choice as a church for a very specific reason. And it's because we believe that this book, the Bible, has enormous value and worth in our lives to shape us, to form us, to help us know better who God is and to grow in our faith to God. And we recognize that for a lot of us, it's like, that's just a big, huge, dusty book that has my name written in gold on the front that somebody gave me when I was a kid, and I don't know what to do with it. So we thought, hey, as a church together, let's start at the beginning of a book and let's work through it. That's why we've done it, right? But here's the thing. If you haven't spent a lot of time reading the Bible in the past and you start, there's one thing that happens to everyone who does that. Eventually, you find yourself reading something that you don't like very much, that it doesn't, doesn't sit quite right with you. So last week I mentioned that and I said that, you know, the book of Colossians has just such a passage. But most of the time, pastors like me don't choose that passage because it's not as fun to talk about. The problem is when you find it on your own for the first time and all you've done is hear pastors like me stand up here and say things that were really easy to swallow, that were inspirational, that felt good, and then you find this other thing, you feel tricked, duped, misled. And that's led to a lot of people either maintaining and living with half a faith or walking away from faith altogether. And so I let you know that this week I was going to be talking about the passage, which I, I refused to tell anybody last week what it was about, hoping that I would trick you into reading ahead. Did anybody do it? Anybody read ahead? See what, what you might be offended by today? Great. Good. It worked. I got you. <laughs> because what we're going to talk about today, at first glance, can, can cause some rather unsavory questions to form in your mind. Things like, does the Bible establish sexism as the expectation for humanity? Does our faith endorse slavery? Does what we believe create a caste system where some people are inherently of more value than other people are? All of those are conclusions that people have variously made based upon what we're going to read today. Are you excited to get into it? Yeah? Before we do, I have to tell you one story about me. Um, when I was in high school, I was super excited to get my driver's license. And I know that that's not uh, unlike other people, but the reason I was so excited may surprise you. So when I turned 16, I was really excited because it meant in the summers, if I could get my mom to let me borrow her car, I could go pick up my best friend, Matt, and we now had some freedom, some autonomy that we didn't have before. And we used that freedom, let's say, to do some things our parents did not expect us to be doing. So this is what we do. I'd pick my friend up, Matt, and we would drive into Kansas City. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Kansas City, um, and so it'd be about a 35-minute drive. We'd drive right into kind of the, kind of the urban core of the city uh, into this neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, what, there was a university, the University of Missouri at Kansas City. And so that, we'd go to that neighborhood and we'd park our car and we'd walk onto campus. And then in campus, we would go to the library. 
because we knew that in this campus, in the urban core of Kansas City, in the library, we had access to some things we didn't have access to back in the suburbs. And in particular, what it gave us access to was something called LexisNexis. Are you guys familiar with LexisNexis? The king of all search engines. We had unfettered access to thousands of full-text articles from periodicals and journals around the world in a number of subjects. And what's even better, UMKC at that time had free printing in the library, right? We printed so much that the librarians got to know us and just told us where they kept the extra paper in the back because we would, use, we would print out all the paper in their printers. So we'd spend all day finding articles and journal entries on a number of topics and printing them out. And I kid you not, zero exaggeration every time we would each go home with at least a full ream of things printed out. And then we'd have a sleepover at one of our houses and we'd stay up all night reading the articles underlining things. And then the best parts, we'd cut out and tape them on other pieces of paper, carefully cite them, write titles. Then we'd arrange those into orderly structured arguments because we were on the debate team. Yeah. I spent my summers when I got my driver's license driving to a college library so that I could do more research so that when the school year finally started, it would all pay off and I could crush my opponents mercilessly in cross-examination debate rounds. You see, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I always have been. And at this point in my life, I try to hide it. Um, and I'm just sorry I've tried. It's going to come out today. So I need you to have some grace for me when I start quoting 4th century BCE uh, Greek philosophers and 1st century common area Roman magistrates because I do think it's incredibly important for us to understand where this book comes from and more importantly, how, who we are and the assumptions that we bring to it shape often in incorrect ways the meaning we find in this book. So I promise I won't try to nerd out too much, but there's going to be moments, okay? If you're a nerd like me, you're going to love it. Everyone else, just bear with me. Okay, so let's, let's hop right into it. Let's read the passage at hand. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, um, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourself into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. All right, how do you feel? Maybe a good question my therapist always asks me when I, when I, she's like, where do you feel it? 
Does something come up in your body? I, maybe particularly um, to the ladies in the room when you hear that. Do you have a history with a passage like that? I imagine there are some people in this room who you feel anger right now at the mere mention of some of that. Or maybe you feel sad. Some of you feel like I've broken an unwritten rule where we've all agreed to just ignore and not talk about this part of the Bible. And you're like, Chris, there's people watching on screen. There's a lot of different ways that we can feel. And and, and I just want to say this too. I know that there are some folks in the room who you hear that and you're like, what's the fuss? I I mean, you don't have a problem with that. And here's what I just want us to all make an agreement. Wherever you are right now, we have a bit of a journey ahead of us as we explore this passage. And it's okay to be where you're at now, but every time we read the Bible, we have an opportunity to be changed and grown by it. So can we all just make a commitment that regardless of what seat I'm sitting in right now, I'm committed to try and let the Bible influence me so that I walk away today different than when I came. Okay. So when we have a passage like this, I find that in general, people will choose one of four ways of responding to it. Number one is you just ignore it. You're like, oh, I didn't like that one, so I'll just keep reading until I find something I do like, and then I'll reread that part. Some of us reject it, and that can be I just reject this portion, or I reject the Bible in general. And there are a lot of people for whom the Bible's seemingly implicit endorsement of things like slavery and patriarchy has led them to say, I cannot be a part of this faith. There are those who will take a more literal, at-face value and just say, the Bible says it, I believe it, I'm going to do it. And then there's a fourth way. This is my way. And that's to explore it. See, I believe anytime you read the Bible, there's going to come parts that, that chafe or they don't seem to fit just right. And rather than just trying to either ignore it or reject it, it makes me want to ask more questions. I've got to explore it. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. So I got to look more. I got to ask more questions because the more questions I ask, the more likely I am to eventually find some answers. I believe so strongly in the power of questions and that we are given absolute freedom to follow them. And so how do you explore it? Well, you can explore its literary context, right? You would never read one page out of the middle of a novel and think that you understand everything on it. You have to read what came before and what came after. So for this, what what has Paul been talking about previously in the letter to the Colossians? What's he going to say after this? Last week we talked, there's this verse, it's, it's chapter three, verse 11. It says, a paragraph before what we just read, and Paul says, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. There's no longer slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. How am I to understand that statement from the same author in the same piece of literature with the household code that we just read? These, it matters understanding how they fit together. We get curious We explore the literary context. But we can go further, right? We can ask, how does this fit in the larger biblical narrative? How does it work with other things in the Bible? So this is actually a very specific genre, something called a household code, where he talks about the three uh, main kind of relationships within the Greco-Roman household, which is the husband to the wife, the father to the children, and the master to the slaves. 
It's always those three. There are a number of them in the New Testament. There's one in particular in Ephesians that we'll look at closely later. It's important for us to look at those. What can what Paul says in Ephesians tell me about how to understand what Paul says in Colossians? How do some of the other radical statements that are made in the Bible about the equality of people and about how in the kingdom of God, the things that divide us into separate camps are broken down, that we are unified in a singular humanity, how does that help me understand it? We have to look at anything in the Bible that bothers us in the context of the rest of the arc of the biblical story. And then our curiosity can drive us to look at what was its contemporary context. If there are a number of these similar household codes in the Bible, could it possibly be true that there were even more of them in the contemporary secular world? And the answer you would find if you explored that is yes. It's an extremely common genre. Can we find copies of them? Yes. Later, I'm going to read one to you from uh, our homeboy Aristotle, who you probably heard about at some point, right? So we can look at that and say, what, what's different and what's alike between what the Bible has to say about the way the household is expected to operate compared to what the world around it was going to say? Here's the thing. We have to stay curious. We have to let ourselves have thoughts and then follow those thoughts and then explore what the answers to our questions might be. A lot of times in the church, we have been taught or somehow come to believe that it's not okay to ask questions, that it's not okay to entertain a doubt, that we have to believe we know everything and never let anyone know if there's trouble under the surface. And I just got to say, this is not that kind of church, and I don't want any of us to have that kind of faith. So when I went to college, um, I knew I wanted to be a pastor when I was like 15 or 16 years old. I've been kind of working towards this path for a long time in my life. Uh, but I went to a state college. And so I majored in religious studies, thinking, well, that seems like it'll prepare me well for seminary. Well, it turns out that majoring in religious studies at a state university is very different than studying theology. Now, I'm from, I'm from Missouri. I like the Bible belt, you know, the buckle of it right down there. Um, when I started my program in religious studies, every single one of the students in my class was a professing, professing Christian. Four years later, when I graduated, two of us still were. Everyone else had become either uh, an atheist or an agnostic. Why? Well, because we got presented with some reading, with some material, with some lectures that brought up some really big, really hard questions about things that we had not been prepared for in our churches growing up. So why did I maintain my faith when so many of my peers didn't? This is the only reason I can think of. I kept a mental list of the questions of the things that challenged me. And I, and I, and I said to myself, you know, I don't know the answers to these things yet, but I believe they're out there and I believe I'll find them. And so as I kept reading, as I kept learning, the opportunity came to start checking off some of those boxes, to realize that there were brilliant, intelligent men and women who had asked these questions before me and who had found Jesus through them, right? Rather than just letting them sit and do battle and damage the faith that I brought in there, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow that question out. This is probably the biggest reason why I wanted to teach on this today. 
because I have seen it play out how when we get confronted with something that doesn't seem to fit what I believe to be true about God, if unquestioned, if unanswered, it can lead to the end of our faith. And I simply don't think it has to do that. So we have to stay curious. And the last thing we can do when we come up against something that we don't know what to do with is we pray. We pray about it. And so let me pray right now before we go further. God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for who you are. Um, I thank you for your word preserved for us in the Bible. And even though it's odd, God, I, I thank you for the snags that we hit along the way. I thank you for the things that upset us and that drive us to dive deeper into our faith, our learning, and who you are, because when we do so, I believe that you meet us there, God. And that's what I pray for today, that as we um, explore Paul's words recorded in Colossians, that we would come to know more who you are and be more convinced of our place uh, in your world. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we have this passage where wives are called to be subject to their husbands where slaves are told to obey their earthly masters. So let's take a look at kind of what our modern view on statements like that is. So I mentioned before that this is a common genre. It's called a, house, a household code. Everybody in the ancient world, everybody in the church of the Colossians would have been familiar with them, right? They always defined three sets of relationships, husband to wife, father, not parents, but father to children, uh, and masters to slaves. Because in the Greco-Roman household, those were kind of the three major groups. Now, when we look at them now, for the, if you read books about it, a lot of the scholarship tries to just kind of ignore the slavery part. Kind of saying, you know what, we've all decided that slavery was this awful, sinful thing that was an aberration to God, and we're just moving beyond it. And we can look at it and say, you know, I do wish Paul would have just said, masters, free your slaves, right? That's what we wish he would have said but he doesn't. And most people tend to want to just move on. Now, the part about uh, children obeying their parents, almost everybody just glosses over that part. It's, it's not that challenging to us. Um, it's also the part that is least developed in this scripture on the household codes and the rest of them. But then there's this other part. There's this part about wives and husbands. And this one tends to get people's hackles up. Because we know that there are a lot of people today who believe that God made men and women differently and that men specifically are called to lead, protect, provide, and hold all of the authority in their household. And that women are called to submit to men and offer support and help along the way. And then there are many who heartily disagree we even have names for these peoples. Uh, those who, who talk about the different roles of gender roles of men and women are called complementarians. The idea is that God made men and women differently to complement one another. And then the other side is what we would call egalitarians. The idea that God made uh, the groups of men and women to embody all of the different gifts capable in a relationship and that when we come together in relationship, our job is to find mutuality and equality with one another. The complementarians, to be fair, would say that while we are separate in our roles in what God wants for us, everyone is equal in their dignity before God. Egalitarians, of which I am one, 
would say that I think we learned a long time ago that separate is never equal. That we simply cannot get there unless we believe that God has called each person in this room to embody all the aspects of God's nature. That when the Bible tells us that all people were made in the image of God, it means it. Not that any of us were made in half of the image of God. And I do want to say this. I am very much an egalitarian, and you are sitting in a church that is extremely, strongly, staunchly convinced that that is the way we are to approach the relationships between men and women. But I want to say this, because it is often said of people like me that I am caving to the pressures of our culture that I am leaving behind the leadership and authority of the Bible in order to say something that will make me more popular with the world around me. I want you to know that I believe what I believe because I am convinced to the core of my person that when we look through the entire complexity of the scriptural story, that is where it directs us to be. That God made all people, all races, all cultures, all genders to be expressions of who God is and that we are to hold each other together with all respect and dignity and power. Not because there's an outside voice that tells me that, but because the voice that comes to me from the Holy Spirit through the Bible tells me that that is true. And those who would say that I, yeah, you can do that. And to those who would say that I am caving to culture, I would say I believe that you are caving to a toxic evangelical culture that has been handed down to us through the years and that God himself is calling us to slay that down, to confess of our sins and to live rightly as God has always wanted us to. So, that said, how do you read this passage and land in the place that I just said, right? Because this passage and the ones like it in particular are at the very core, they are the foundation of the complementarian point of view. And so I would say this, what if, what if for centuries we've been reading Paul wrong? What if... We have dramatically misunderstood him as we bring our 21st century assumptions into a first century document. See, a lot of the people on the complementarian side, they will say, no, we, we, you're just going to start reading a whole bunch of crap and making this super complex, but at face value, if you look at the plain and literal interpretation, it's very clear that what I'm saying is right. And I'll be honest, I actually agree. The face value, plain and literal interpretation does tell us the truth in this passage. But what is very much at question is who gets to decide what that face value interpretation is. Is it people like us in America in 2021 or the people living in the city of Colossae in the first century Roman Empire? Because we read that passage at face value dramatically different than they did. Here's what I mean. When we read it, when I read it, I guess, I'll I'll speak just for myself, what jumps out at me is what would happen if I walked up to my wife and told her that she was to be subject to me, right? That's what jumps out. 
I hear something saying, slaves, obey your earthly masters, and I feel gross inside. That is what jumps out. You and I cannot read this and miss that part. That's what stands out. That is not what would have been highlighted in the ears and the minds of the first century hearer. Because you see, all of those things about obedience and being subject, those were legal requirements. That was not a secret to anybody. Paul wasn't saying anything revolutionary there. That's exactly what was expected. I mentioned earlier that we actually have the good fortune of being able to see some of the contemporary household codes outside of the Christian tradition that were prevalent. So here's one written by Aristotle in the fourth century that was very emblematic of the view. Listen to this. See, see how you like this. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife, a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The inequality is permanent. The courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of women, silence is a woman's glory, but this is not equally the glory of man. How's that sitting? Yeah, I hear some murmurs out there. Listen, when we read Paul, what jumps out at us is the call of the inferior class as it is defined there to submit and obey. That is not what the original hearers would have heard. It would have been like the way that you tune out when Beth was giving the announcements, right? Like that's, when they hear that part, that's what the original hearer heard. When you hear that, think about it again. Can you hear the difference between Paul and Aristotle? Let me point a couple things out. Because the original audience heard something very different than we do. See, in the Roman code, in that one we just heard from Aristotle, um, only the male is ever addressed. It never, under any circumstance, speaks to the quote-unquote inferior body. Paul does. He speaks to women. He speaks to children. He speaks to slaves. That in itself is truly revolutionary. It is genre-breaking. The way that, these, that the, the letters work is Paul would write to a church and then somebody would read it out loud to the church. And so you can imagine a room like this full of people when those wives, when those children, when those slaves heard them addressed, their heads would have exploded. The assumption was always that the male head of the house made decisions for everybody. And so you didn't even have to speak to them. You just spoke to him. This is a huge shift, right? Then, then he goes on. Paul, what's Paul say to the wise? Be subject to your husbands. Why? As is fitting in the Lord. That phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, is a huge departure from the culture in which he lived because it was assumed that women were to be submissive because they were inherently inferior. They were designed specifically to be ruled. Another debate nerd moment. Did you know that in the Greco-Roman world, women were considered to just be deformed men? Did you know that? You're mutants, ladies. 
Aristotle said it in his book, Generations of Animals. It would later be agreed to by um, a second century BCE uh, Roman writer named Galen, who would say, yeah, women, they're just, it's a deformity, but, you know, it is a convenient one. It's lit- literal word, like, like, because it allows for procreation. Women were genetically in their constitution, in their character, in every way considered inferior. That was why they were to submit. Paul says, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Rather than appealing to her lesser nature here, Paul says that your life, ladies, is to be lived in response to who Jesus is. That your life will model Jesus's life. And who led the way in submission in this world? Jesus did. There's a redefinition here that we don't see that could not have been missed in the ancient world where Paul is saying, ladies, I want you to live your life in response to Jesus, not in response to your husband. Paul is supplanting what the Romans called the pater familias. That's like the, the office, the title, the institution of power in the male head of household saying, that's not your head anymore, Jesus is. That's what Paul is getting at here. Then he goes on. He starts putting limits on the superior body, something that did not happen in the uh, contemporary codes at the time. He tells masters, you are to treat your slaves fairly and justly since you too have a master in heaven. The word used there for fairly in the Greek, isotes, it denotes equality with, likeness to. This goes back to that, that verse, chapter three, verse 11. That was, we talked about it last week. That Slave and free. There is no longer slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. That's what Paul is saying. Those of you who own people, you have a master in heaven too. That person is your brother, is your equal, is not your property. See, there was an accepted belief in their culture that some people were made to rule and others were made to be ruled. That the persons who were trapped in slavery were just by their nature inferior to those who owned them. And that was how it was supposed to be. Paul speaks to the slave. The slave was never spoken to. Paul addresses them and shows them a way that you can start to have some sense of agency. As you live your life in response to who Jesus is, not who your master is. I love this. Scholar Marion May Thompson uh, says this. Finally then, Paul turns to the master and urges them to treat their slaves with justice and fairness. For they too have a Lord or master, side note, word for Lord, everywhere in the New Testament, exact same word as word for master. For they too have a Lord or master in heaven. Since the distinction between masters and slaves was often coupled with a view of a slave's inferiority in status, nature, and character, Paul's reminder that Christian slave owners are, in fact, slaves of Christ has turned these social conventions upside down. With this assertion, Paul puts slave and free, slave and master on the same footing. Both serve the same master. Both are ultimately responsible, not to a human master, but to the Lord in heaven. If the master has certain legal rights in this world, he nevertheless must behave not according to what his rights may be, but rather according to what his obligations are as one who serves the Lord Jesus. You see, when Paul puts this household code in the book of Colossians, he has a purpose. 
He's writing what historian Beth Allison Barr calls a resistance narrative to the Roman hierarchy. He's not just restating what everyone already knew. That would make no sense. There would be no reason to do that. There's no reason for him to say, wives, be subject to your husbands, unless he has something else going on here, because everybody always understood it that way. But Paul writes these letters to help the people who have chosen to follow Jesus understand how to do it. How am I to live distinctly and differently in this world because of who Jesus is? Where are the moments when that steps away from the culture that I have received around me? I have one last debate nerd moment. Ready? And I include this because I'm sure that there are some of you who are still like, yeah, I'm not sure if I buy it, Chris. I'm not sure if I buy it. It's still, I read that and it sounds pretty bad. And it seems like you're just really, really trying hard to, to talk your way out of something in the Bible. What I believe that um, the way that we view women now is actually a more recent um, arrival in the church. And I think that because we have actual historical text that tells us that Christians were seen as gender deviants in the ancient world. Listen to this. Early Christians were perceived by the Roman world as gender deviants. Oseek and MacDonald remind us that Pliny the Younger, um, the writer, not the beer, um, Oseek and MacDonald remind us that Pliny the Younger, after discussing the torture of two Christian women whom he called deacons, described Christianity as a depraved and excessive superstition. As they write, in drawing attention to some kind of female leadership in the group, to the exclusion of references to male leaders, Pliny was implying that the ideals of masculinity were being compromised. Women were in control. And this, in Roman terms, was shameful. Not only did early Christians place women in leadership roles, they met together on equal footing, men, women, children, and slaves. In the privacy of the home, a traditionally female space, Christianity was deviant and immoral because it was perceived as undermining ideals of Roman masculinity. Christianity was repugnant to Pliny because it didn't follow the Roman household codes, not because it followed them. See, we read them one way. They have not always been read that way. Pliny the Younger was a Roman magistrate in the first century, right? This was a powered, secular person. This is his relation of how he viewed, of how the Roman government viewed the early Christians. And they said, they ain't handling their gender stuff right. They're deviant. See, I don't think I'm sacrificing anything in the Bible to the culture I live in. I believe that we are working as hard as we can to find out what God's true heart is when we come in here. So, if this passage doesn't undermine people, what does it do? You see, what Paul is doing here is something very surprising, something very different, even if it isn't obvious to us. It was to his original audience. He's continuing a theme that we see throughout his work, that we see throughout the life of Jesus, and that we can see throughout the Bible in general. You know, we've seen it in Paul. We see it here. 
Uh, we saw it in the, the, the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verse 11, that one that says there's no longer slave and free, for Christ is all and in all. We saw it in this verse um, in the book of Galatians, where again, Paul will say that, that there's no longer Greek or Jew, male or female, slave or free, right? Paul has been revolutionary in this idea that the way that we divide people, that way that we set one group above another, that is going away in the kingdom of God. We see it in the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this absolutely astounding thing that doesn't sound astounding to us at all. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, that a man can be guilty of adultery. And that's not surprising to us, right? It was then because in the Jewish law, only a woman could be guilty of adultery. And if she committed adultery, it was a capital offense. She was to be executed. But if her husband visited a prostitute or slept with anyone else, he was allowed to just divorce her and be away with it. He was not guilty of adultery. But Jesus says, no, you are, men. You have an obligation to your wives. This is a relationship of mutuality, not of one powered person and one completely unpowered person. Jesus later, he will tell Mary of Bethany, his friend, who chooses to sit at his feet and learn while he teaches. And she's called to question by that, like you should be in the kitchen serving. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better thing. The, the phrase to sit at the feet of a rabbi is how they describe somebody who was the official student of the teacher, something that women were absolutely not allowed to do. And Jesus said, no, she's doing the right thing. Right before he dies, a woman will come to Jesus and she'll break open an alabaster jar of perfume and she'll pour it out on his feet. She'll anoint him with it. And it causes a big scandal. Normally, we only notice that this was apparently like an incredible fortune that she has now wasted on him. But one of the things that we miss is that the word Christ, as in Jesus Christ, is the Greek uh, equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. You know what it means? It means anointed one. See, in, in ancient Israel, only the king had that term because when, when the crown was bestowed, the king was anointed. Do you think women were allowed to anoint the king? They were not. But the king of all kings is anointed by a woman. See what's happening? The Bible is showing us a different understanding of humanity that is built upon mutuality and equality. And why? why? Why would that find its way into the Bible, right? Well, I mentioned that Paul has other household codes, right? One is in Ephesians chapter 5. Look what this says. This is where we're going to kind of wrap up today. Ephesians 5, that household code begins with this phrase. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember, Paul's speaking to the whole household here. He's calling everyone to be subject to the other. And he'll go into detail about that, but let's look specifically at what Paul says to the husband here. Verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. That's a big task. That's a really big task. He says that husbands, you are to do it just like Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus do it? What was the role that Jesus took in his relationships? I'm going to read you one more Bible verse. This is Philippians chapter 2. 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I know this was a lot of Bible verses. I did that on purpose because we have to understand that there is a continuity in the scriptures, that they are not divided, that this theme of the equality, the equal dignity, respect due to all of humanity runs at the core of this throughout the whole dang thing. See, this is the Jesus way. This is the Jesus way to lay down power, not to hoard it. To sacrifice and to serve, not to lord over and attempt to rule people. To be honest, I worried about me giving this talk, right? Because I am painfully aware that I have been on the privileged side of the equation in almost every category of my life. I'm an American, I'm white, I'm male. I'm educated. My parents were educated. I grew up with enough. I grew up with resources. I had all these things and I thought, what does somebody like me have to say about this? But then while I studied, something occurred to me. See, Paul was like that too. He was a man. He was brilliant. He was extremely educated. But more importantly, Paul was a Roman citizen. And because of that, he was entitled to protections and rights that other people weren't. And the demonstration in his life is to say, even though I've got all that, I'm going to lay it down. Paul ended his life in prison. Why? Because he was committed to serving others, to bringing the word of God, even when it was going to cost him something. If Paul can do that, then I can too. So I... I want to live, and I hope you will live with me in a way where if I see a group of people who are pressed down, I know it is my responsibility to lift them up. If I have strength, it is my job to spend it on behalf of those who do not. That is how Paul lived. That is how Jesus lived. That is what the story of the Bible tells me about the way we are to live in this world. And I pray and I pray and I pray that that is how this church will live to be a force in the culture, in the world around us, saying that we will not let anyone be left aside. We will go to the margins and invite them in, that we will be a place that calls every person to the heart, to the center, because that's where Jesus is and that's where Jesus calls every person. We all pray with me? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are, God, that we are invited to be a part of a world where we are not not here to seek our own good to the exclusion of others, where we are not called to, to, to just look out for ourselves, God, but that you have called us to one another, to the world around us, to be a place where all people know that they are of infinite value, esteem, and worth because they are yours, God. And so, Lord, as we go into this world, I pray that these words from the Bible would direct us towards the heart of you, towards making the reality in our neighborhood be the reality of your kingdom, God. It's in your name we pray.